Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Afternoon, everyone. Nice to be at Sabbath services here with everybody. Hard to believe we were snowed in with ice and snow for two weeks with the weather outside today. It's the 17th day of the 11th month. We're 86 days to Passover, so we're less than three months now until Passover. May West said, I generally avoid temptation until I can't resist it. Oscar Wilde, in his novel Lady Windermere's Fan, said, I can resist anything but temptation. Often Mae West is quoted as saying that, but that was actually Oscar Wilde. Uh, Some of you may have read The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. In that novel, he wrote, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. And those of you who saw Batman from the 80s will remember the Joker saying, ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Mankind has wrestled with the question of the nature of man for centuries. In the 17th century, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke went back and forth. Hobbes was of the opinion that man was inherently evil, and Locke was of the opinion that man was inherently good. And their philosophies and what they wrote stemmed from those, those beliefs. When we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, with Passover, again, as I say, less than three months away, as we start to build towards that holy day season, we're reminded that the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 27, chapter 11, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So this process of self-examination is one that is, should be underway. It's a, it's a lifelong, it is year-long, but we tend to ramp up with this process of self-examination as we put extra focus on it as we approach Passover. So as we prepare to embark on another holy day season in a, in a few months, it all begins, the entire plan of God that we celebrate and look at every year with preparation for the Passover and the self-examination process. So today what I would like to do is take a look at the subject of resisting temptation. And in order to do so, I'd like to break it down in the following ways. We're first going to look at understanding Satan and his devices because we need to understand our enemy and our adversary. Then I'd like to take a look at understanding ourselves. Is Hobbes right or is Locke right? And then we'll take a look at actually at a tool we have at our disposal that we may have never thought of to help us in our battle to put on the mind of Christ, which is what we are here on this earth for 70 plus or minus years to do, is to put on this mind of Christ. And to our young people, as you prepare for your entry into womanhood or manhood, understanding yourselves and how your adversary works could save you from a heap of trouble. And we'll take a look at some biblical examples to show you just that. 
So let's start by understanding Satan's devices. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 to start as we look at this subject of temptation. Ephesians chapter 2. Because as we consider ourselves, as we begin the self-examination process, there are some things we've likely improved on this year. We set ourselves some goals last year. But there are those days we look at ourselves and keep making those same silly mistakes, those same silly things that we wish we would stop doing. And we wonder why, why we keep doing those silly things. In verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, I, I, I do realize that this is written in the past tense, but, again, this is just an idea to, uh, looking at this proof text, is to look at the, how Satan works and how Satan works through, through the invisible, working in our minds and working with human beings in such a way that he works intangibly. We can't see, we can't see how he works in, the, in the, the thought waves, but we know that he works in our minds. And to continue on with this thought, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul can, writing to the, this group in, in Corinth. So he's known as the prince of the power of the air, the airwaves, so to speak. And in verse 11, let's go back to verse 10 just to not start in the middle of a sentence. Now whom you forgive, you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that, that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are ignorant of his we are not ignorant of his devices. So we have this being out there, our adversary, who is considered called the prince of the power of the air. So he works on a wavelength that we humans uh, don't completely understand. And here Paul is acknowledging that he has devices. He has ways in which he works, ways that he manipulates, ways that he tries to get through to human beings and try to convince them of his ways. If we go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, just to sort of tie some things together here about our adversary. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're just going to read one verse here. We'll come back to 1 Peter 5 much later. But verse 8, again, talking about these devices that Paul was talking about, talking about this, this prince of the power of the air, how he works on these wavelengths. Peter reminds us to be sober and be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter's nearing the end of his life, and he's talking to a general epistle to, to the Christian churches, encouraging them, admonishing them to be, to be warned and be vigilant, to always be, to always be, to be uh, uh, sober, to be attention to detail, because the adversary is looking to take us down. He's, he, he, that's all he has left. All his, only, his only time between now and the time that he is dealt with is to try to bring people down. So is Hobbes right or is Locke right with 
this understanding of who Satan is and how he works in these, just using these three, these three texts to start, his devices and how he is, works with, with our minds. Is Hobbes right or is Locke right? Well, the Bible does have something to say about that. We'll go back to the Old Testament first in Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. Absence of God. Absence of God. Verse 7. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Blessed is the man, Jeremiah 17, verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its root by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding a fruit. But the heart, man's heart, who man is, man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God continues, I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So God knows our heart, but our heart, absence of God, is wicked. We are just naturally, we are not good people. We need God and we need Christ in our, in our life to change us, to put on this mind of Christ. But absence of that mind of Christ, we are wicked. Over to Romans. We're quite familiar with this set of verses in Romans chapter 8. This was not just a, an Old Testament understanding, but Paul, here in Romans chapter 8, tells us the carnal mind, verse 7. Go back to verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit to the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So when we have God in our lives, we start to put on this mind of Christ. But the carnal mind, where we came from, what we naturally are absent of God, is enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So these two proof texts are here to tell us that Hobbes is right. Man is inherently absent of God, is wicked. Man is just, man is evil. We can see that in any number of, of analogies. The, the um, Lord of the Flies, anyone who's ever had a chance to read Lord of the Flies, uh, is a great example where these 10-year-old boys were, were on, a, on a ship. I think they were on a scouting trip, and their, their ship was shipwrecked, and there was no adults to, to monitor them. So they were a group of 10-year-old boys who were left to fend for themselves. And just naturally, over the course of how many ever months before they were rescued, two teams developed and they became at war. And at the end, and I've probably used this analogy before, but at the end when they were rescued, the, the uh, person who rescued them said, what happened here? And they said, we just did what we thought the adults would do. Just 10-year-old ten ten year boys, when the absence of this situation, just running around playing, left to their own accord, just naturally, just naturally became evil. And, became, and, and war. Because, as God says here, in both 
Jeremiah and Romans, we're naturally wicked. We need the mind of Christ. We need God's ways to change us. So I still sin every day. I don't want to. I don't mean to. And we'll see something here back in, turn to Romans chapter 7, which is back in page. And we'll see Paul himself struggling with this concept. I still sin every day. I'm grateful for God's mercy. I'm eternally grateful for Christ's sacrifice. My calling is a first fruit. With all that I have on my side, I still sin. I still, at the end of the day, can look in the mirror and say, I dropped the ball. I dropped the ball. This battle of wills is at the heart of it. I want to do good. And we see here Paul describes this battle of wills better than I can describe it. So let's read his words, chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. And keep in mind, Paul here is writing as an apostle more than 20 years after his calling. This isn't a newbie. This is 20 years after his calling, more than 20 years. And he's talking in the present tense with his, his current struggle with his human nature. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I don't practice. But what I hate, that I do. I know what I should be doing. I know God's law. I know his love for me. I know all that I should be doing. And yet, I drop the ball. Now, he doesn't drop the ball all the time. But from a human, human being trying to become perfect and put on the mind of Christ, failing him once feels like you fail him all the time, like, you're, like you are dropping the ball. And here he says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Absent of using the mind of Christ, man is inherently evil. And it is this, this, this human nature within him that causes him to make these wrong choices. Even though with, with the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit in him, he wants to do good, there is still, while we're in this physical body, this battle of wills. Wanting to follow God, still having this seed of humanity in you that just doesn't let you 100% of the time follow God. It causes you to give in once in a while to the temptation to satisfy the self. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform it, what, what is good, I do not find. The spirit in him wants, he wants to do right. But he has this struggle that despite the, being filled with God's Holy Spirit, being an apostle, there is still this bit of flesh in him that causes him to, to give in to temptation. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. And again, he has the Holy Spirit. God is making him into a new being. But this, this old man that he, we continually try to, to put off creeps up its head once in a while, and he gives in to this temptation. So this, it's this battle of wills, understanding that Satan communicates with us on, on a wavelength that despite our ability to have God's Holy Spirit and do all that we can, there's still that once in a while that we succumb to, to this temptation. 
So how do we get ourselves into the messes that we do when we look at ourselves in the mirror and and want to be better each year? Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at some biblical examples of how people are tempted into sin or succumb to these temptations. Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at three examples. And I've specifically chosen these three examples. This isn't the only way that people, these aren't the only conditions that people find themselves tempted or succumbing to sin. But let's look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. As we read this, let's notice the elements of the setting. Let's picture in our mind's eye this setting. And we know they're in the Garden of Eden. And the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat out of every tree of the garden? So he finds the woman in the garden on her own. And he says to her, Has God really said this? And the woman says to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hmm. What do I do? She's alone, walking in the Garden of Eden. This sounds plausible. It's not what, I, it's not what God said. But can it really get me in? It's just a piece of fruit. Can it really get me in that much trouble? So when she saw that the tree was good for food, it looked good, looked like the other trees, it looked like the fruit of the other trees, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, let me try. What, what, what harm can it do? What harm can it do? So she's alone, a series of half-truths, a little bit of lies, a little bit of cunning from the serpent. Some mind games, thinking what can be done. And she makes the decision on her own. And then, then she found her husband, gave some to him, and he ate. Second Samuel chapter 11. Let's go there next. We'll tie these in. In a few minutes. Second Samuel chapter 11. And again, as we read, try to focus on the setting and what it would be like to be in King David's position or to be watching King David, like you're a fly on the wall watching what is going on. It happened in the spring of the year, verse 1 at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Then it had just happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. So it's late one evening, he can't sleep, he gets up, he goes for a stroll in his big palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, 
the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to the house, and the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now this is speculation on my part, but just understanding me and the human mind. And as we read scripture, sometimes it's all, it's tightly knit into, combined into some, some tight area here. It seems logical to me, and again, speculation on my part, that these actions didn't happen just from one glance over. He just happened to be walking on the roof that evening. He probably, in my opinion, if I was in this position, I probably knew she was on Wednesday and Friday evenings, was bathing on top of the roof. So, oh, it's Wednesday, I can't sleep, let me go for a stroll. And repeatedly did it enough to where he, because he was a man of God. If you had asked him when he was, when he was in his good sense and was, was plugged into God completely, he probably would never have imagined he would do this. And we see that later when Nathan, when Nathan clued him in. But he was by himself. There was no one around, all alone. Probably, probably, again, speculation on my part, this wasn't the first time he had seen her. So he goes back to bed and starts thinking. And then Friday night comes along, and he goes for another stroll. We don't know how long, we don't know the process of how long this took, where he convinced himself this might be a good idea. So let me use my power, tell my servants, and not a single person stood up and said, are you sure you want to do this? This is wrong. He said, this is the wife of Uriah. Go get her for me. And, of course, they're there to further their own careers and not say no to the king. So he had some help here. And this was a man after God's own heart with no one with the courage to advise him against this choice. There were so many around him just eager to give him what he wanted. Let's go for a third example here to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14. Pick it up in verse 1. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I've seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said, is there no woman among your daughters and your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she pleases me well. Let's jump forward in the story. We know he was a God used him. And God used these incidents and his power, this power that he gave Samson to bring his people back from their depths of depravity. But Samson doesn't seem to be a man of God. When Samson, verse 16, chapter, one, chapter 16, verse 1, Samson, again, later on, went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. And when the Gazites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and they lay in wait for him all night in the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, In the morning when it is daylight, we will kill him. 
And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. So that's story number two. By himself, down in the big city, no one around, goes into a harlot. Verse 4, after it happened that he loved a woman, after this, later on, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And we know what happens. Delilah entices him and gets him to give over his secret. He loses his strength. And we know the process that happened there. But here is a man blessed with power from God who took advice from no one, was always on his own, put himself in positions to where there he allowed himself to succumb to his temptations and there was no one around to guide him out of it. He made his own decisions based on satisfying his own desires. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 23 as we tie these stories together. Now again, not every sin in the Bible is of these, to these types of settings, but notice the commonality in these three as we look into resisting temptation. People that were on their own with no one around to help them, no one to guide them, no one to bounce ideas off of, left to their own devices. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 tells us, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. The, the English Standard Version says, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. And when you look up the word think relative to th- in his heart, it is more than just think. This Hebrew word, sar, 8176 in the Hebrew dictionary, the way the English Standard Version translates it, inwardly calculating. This think actually means calculating. It's more than just thinking. It's reasoning and calculating. And when you calculate, he uses the word in his heart, when you're inwardly calculating. This is more than just, hmm. This is, there's a difference between, hmm, and, hmm. I've got this piece of fruit on a tree that I hear is not supposed to be good. But what harm would it do? Hmm. There's a lady bathing over on this rooftop, and she is there three times a week, and I know she's there. And I've got everybody else out fighting my battles for me. Hmm. There's this beautiful gentleman or beautiful woman outside of my faith. I, I want to be with them. Everything I, everything I know tells me I shouldn't. My parents tell me I shouldn't. The people I trust tell me I shouldn't. But I just want it so bad. And you have these conversations within. Adam wasn't there to talk with Eve. What if Adam had been there that day and Eve had someone to bounce that off of? What if David had been having a late-night tea on his rooftop with Nathan the prophet when he saw her? 
What if David had surrounded himself with people who would have said, I'm not going to get her for you. That's wrong. What if Samson had listened to the advice of his parents and married within his faith? When we consider Jeremiah 17 and Romans 8, there is a difference between thinking and calculating. And when we put ourselves in a position to calculate, we set ourselves up for the possibility to succumb to temptation. To our young people, you're out one night with some friends. You're at a dance club for some innocent fun dancing with friends. I don't find that fun. My wife does. We don't get it. She doesn't get a chance to do it anymore. But there was a time she used to like to go out on a Thursday night and listen to some Irish music and just dance the, dance the night away. So you're at a dance club one night with some innocent fun dancing with your friends. You're not drinking because actually you've, you've committed that night to be the designated driver. So you're not worried about drinking. But you're out there li- spending time with your friends, listening to music. And one of your friends, somebody you don't know very well, more like an acquaintance, tells you that if you're a young man, she, if you're a young woman, he, they need a ride home. Because the person that they came with, they cut out early. And they're, they're, they're on their own, they need a ride home. You can tell that this person's had a few drinks and needs some help getting around. And none of your buddies are there, so you're alone. It's just a car ride. I'm not going to, I don't believe in this. I don't believe in giving myself before marriage. And I, she's a little drunk, but I trust myself. It's, it's a 30-minute ride. She lives out in the country. It's, we'll be okay. Here's the battle of wills. Welcome now to your battle of wills. Do you drive her home? Because you're pretty sure nothing's going to happen. You you trust yourself. Or do you pay for a cab and ensure nothing happens? When you provide temptation or our adversary, and this goes not just for our youth, that was just an example, but for all of us, we have the Internet at our disposal. It's very good. But there's a lot of nonsense on the Internet that when you're by yourself and something pops up and you I've never seen this before. No one around. Let's have a look. When you provide temptation or our adversary with an opportunity to get you alone, you are risking disaster. Nine times out of ten, you might make the right choice. But when you put yourselves in a situation where you give them opportunity It's when opportunity meets temptation that we risk dropping the ball. You didn't mean to. You didn't plan on it. You're like Paul. I know what I need to do. I know I shouldn't do this. But when I put myself in a position to do that, when I'm out in the Garden of Eden alone and make a decision that I'm pretty sure is wrong, but I'm at a weak point and... It's just a piece of fruit. So I eat it first, then go give it to Adam, rather than pulling it down, saying, Adam, I got this here, and I know we heard this, but what do you think? 
or you're David and you're out on that rooftop by yourself. But you have a confidant that you could have called and said, listen, why don't you come over and have a coffee? Let's, let's, I haven't seen you in a while. And put yourself in a better position than David put himself in, his, in that position. We are surrounded by temptations to sin every day. And the, these two that I picked are sexual in nature because that has been one of mankind's major problems. But you can pick any commandment, any sin of any kind. We are surrounded with temptations every day to flip somebody the bird when they cut you off on the highway because you're by yourself in your car. Everyone does it. And who would it hurt? And it makes me feel a little better because I got it off my chest. Or to cut a, cut a lady off as your grocery shopping because i got to get there first. And if I just bump her a little bit or run a little bit faster, any of these little things, who's going to know? When you think, ask yourself, who is going to know? Doesn't the Bible say Christ was tempted and also that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our means? We understand ourselves. We need to make choices to limit these opportunities to put ourselves in a position where we may not be strong enough to make the right decision on our own. And when we consider that Christ was tempted, it says so. And also that God won't allow us to be tempted beyond our means. How does that play into this idea of trying to resist temptation? The Greek word for tempt is parizo, parizo. But there are different meanings. And again, this is one of the sometimes a necessity to dig into the meanings of words because we have an English word tempt, but we have two or three different usages when we read Strong's Concordance. The obvious meaning is to test or prove one's faith or character. But there's an additional meaning and usage which means to test crafty, craftily or maliciously. So when God tests us, he's trying to assess our character. When Satan tests us, the same word, he's doing so craftily or maliciously. Now God sometimes may use Satan's testing to see where we're at. But when Satan tests, he's doing so not to test our character, but to bring us down. Let's look in Matthew chapter 4 first. As we look at this temptation versus testing, sometimes the Bible says it's good, sometimes the Bible says it's bad. Matthew chapter 4. This word parezo Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, this is this word tempter is this word parizo, parizo. It means one, in this case, we're talking about Satan here. It cannot be one who's trying to prove our character. It makes no other sense to me than this meaning of this word to test maliciously. He's trying to bring, he's got nothing else to live for in his existence, other than to bring everyone else down with him. He can't make it into God's kingdom. He doesn't believe, he doesn't believe in the value of it. So we're going to bring everybody down with me. 
That's, that's all he has left to live for. And here, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of man, command that these stones become bread. He's not interested in, say, in Jesus Christ becoming a better man. He's not interested in proving his character. He's trying to bring him down. He's trying to tempt him to make a wrong choice. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we see this word parezo used back and forth with these different meanings. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. To be, again, when God tests us, like he did to Abraham, that is in a sense of trying to prove our character. Improve our character, prove our character. But when Satan does so, again, which God can use, but when Satan does it, his intent is to bring us down, to maliciously tempt us. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Again, let's go back to verse 8 just to pick up the start of a sentence. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some did, some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted. Want to stop here with this tempt Christ. This is the word, is a different word. It is ekparezo, ekparezo. It's used four times. And in this particular, in these particular cases where it's used four times, it has to do with testing God's character. And in all, in all cases, it's used in a negative, we don't have the right to test God's character. Christ has nothing to prove to God he, in this case here. And so this is a, a usage of this, it's a, it's a form of the word, it's an ekparezo. The bulk of the use of the word parezo is used 20, 23 or 29 times. And we'll see them used here. As some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God allows us to be tempted. We recall this scene from Job where Satan is running around four corners of the earth and God says, you come here. And even Satan at that point listens to God and said, I want you to go down and check on my friend Job. Satan relishes that because he wants to bring Job down. God is going to use it to test Job's character. But it says here that God, verse 13, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. He will let you go through things, but he won't let you beyond what you are able. So he's not doing the tempting. He's using the tempting of Satan, but he, and he's allowing it to happen. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape. He didn't notice it says he makes the way of escape. He makes it available. He doesn't drag you through it. He doesn't insist you come through. 
He's making it available. Like David, who could have chosen to go have a tea with Nathan instead of call his servants and say, get that woman for me. Or Eve, who could have said, I'm going to leave that there. and I'm going to go talk to the only other person to talk to right now, which is Adam. And why don't we look at this together and see if this makes any sense. Or Samson, who could have listened to his parents and said, she's really cute, but I trust my parents because they know what's good for me. And I keep reading that I should marry within my faith. And my parents are telling me that. So maybe I will listen to that. He provides a way of an opportunity for us to make a right choice. Do I pay for the cab and ensure I remain pure? Or do I drive her home and hope that I have the strength to make the right choice? That way of escape was actually made before you got in the car. Once you get in the car, you've succumbed to that temptation. Maybe you won't have succumbed all the way and and have that final sin, but you're putting yourself in a position where your way of escape is narrowing down to where you might hit a point and you just can't, you, you, you will not be able to get out. But he makes that way of escape available. Listen to what Martin Luther, the famed theologian, would have us do. He writes, Whenever the devil harasses you, seek the company of men, or drink more, or joke and talk nonsense, or do some other merry thing. Sometimes we must drink more, sport, recreate ourselves, and even sin a little to spite the devil, so that we leave him no place for troubling our consciences with trifles. We are conquered if we try too conscientiously not to sin at all. So when the devil says to you, do not drink, answer him, I will drink, and I will drink freely, because you're not to tell me what to do. So if you've got the devil on the one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder, and the devil saying, don't do that, his answer is to do that because that's disobeying the devil. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. When placed in front of you, that, that philosophy, you can see how David or Eve or Murray would go, wow, that kind of makes sense. Maybe I'll listen to that. When you're on your own and you have no one to bounce it off of and you're stuck on your own going, disobey the the devil's telling me to do it. So if I disobey him, that's actually disobeying it. Man, that actually makes some sense. Hebrews chapter 4. This adds to this meaning of this verse that we've recently studied. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Satan maliciously tried to bring him down, yet he remained without.
without sin. He has been tempted maliciously by Satan, just like we are. The difference is, he remained without sin. He did not succumb to temptation. He, in all cases, resisted that temptation. That's that understanding of that, the meanings of that word parizo for, te- for tempted. He remained without sin. So it's tough to get through this life alone. We see these examples of these Eve, David, Samson getting through this life alone. David, a man of God, succumbing to this temptation. Now, these are grandiose temptations. But any temptation to sin and break God's law, you drop an F-bomb because someone upsets you. Swearing. Sorry for those who don't know what an F-bomb is. I shouldn't use that from the pulpit, I suppose. You swear. Use a, you cur, use a cur, cursed language because you're angry and you succumb to the pressure of the anger that builds up inside you because as a human being, perhaps letting that go relieves the pressure, but it still breaks a commandment. Or doing any other number of sins that you could possibly, possibly do. You don't mean to do it. You don't want to do it. You're like Paul, many years in the faith, but every now and again find yourself up against this resisting temptation. But it's tough to get through this life by yourself. We see these examples of these folks when not surrounded by anybody. They, make, they sometimes make the wrong choice. We're right here in Hebrews. Let's look at verse 16. We don't need to be alone. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So there will come a time when we need help, when we need some support, when we need some strength to make a right choice, when we are tempted, as Christ was, and in order to make the right choice and remain without sin, we have a place to go. We don't rely on ourselves and hope that we make the right choice, but we go to God's throne of grace and ask for his help. To admit that I'm feeling weak here, you need to help me through this, because I know what I want to do, I know what I need to do, I just don't have the strength to make the right choice. That's what we rely on God for. That's why he gives us his Holy Spirit. That's why he helps us through this power and this comforter that he gives us. But look at what else we have at our disposal. Luke chapter 22, where Andrew read from today. Luke chapter 22. Verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, When you succeed, strengthen your brethren. Christ tells Peter that he won't give up on him. Even though he knows he will be maliciously tested, when Peter comes through the testing and 
when he makes the right choice, when Peter makes that right choice, he is to take that faith and not just grow himself, but strengthen his brethren. Because he will have been there, and he will have been through that. He will have been there that night when someone needed a ride home. And he say, listen, let me jump in the car with you. We'll take her home together. This is our mandate. Not just help ourselves, but to help each other through. And we see Christ here saying, go strengthen your brethren. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. We read one verse. Let's read the entire passage in, 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 that we read. 1 Peter chapter 5. Because as we have focused on the role of the church community, we find another advantage of the church community, and that is helping us walk the right way, helping us as individuals walk the right way. And we see Peter here discuss that. We see the, the first four verses talking about the roles within the church and the, the roles of the, the elders. Then he follows that up. Likewise, verse 5, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, talking to the church, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but give, gives grace to the humble. There are roles within the church that Peter defined there, but at the end of the day, we are brethren first. We are all brothers. We have roles to play, but as individuals and as this community, we are brethren, and, it, and we see here to submit ourselves to one another. Someone has an area of strength or has been through this, and again, looking at what uh, Deacon Jan talked to us about before, where there's instances that Christ played with Peter that we see later on in Peter's writings to go strengthen your brethren. Use each other's experiences to help each other through because this life is not what it's about. There should be no shame in saying, you know what? I did that when I was a, I did that when I was a young guy. It doesn't get you anywhere. You need to make the right choice. Or I did this once here. Again, it's not about... Um, opening up your sins to each other, and so we're trying to help each other to strengthen one another and see each other through. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now we can read this verse singularly, in, that, in there and see we're supposed to, as individuals, be sober and be vigilant because Satan's looking for us individually. But when we read this here, submit yourselves to one another, we see the community aspect here. We see the fact that we can, we can get through this life together when we spend time together. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So God is all about us being perfected, being made completely and whole in the image of Christ. But while we're doing so, together, together, submitting ourselves to one another, we are sober and we are vigilant. I cannot be as vigilant like this as I can be 
when we are gathered in a circle, backs to each other, and I know that you've got my back and I've got your back. I don't need to worry about these 290 degrees when I've got these 70 right here. And you've got these 70, and you've got these 70. I don't have to worry. And that way, we are sober and vigilant together, submitting ourselves to one another, sober and vigilant together. So we are all brethren, and together we can resist temptation. How? By spending time together, by making the church community our circle of influence. I am stronger when I'm with my brethren, when I'm with my brothers and sisters. I'm stronger and able to make better choices when there's people there helping me and wanting me to make better choices too. You may have heard this story before, but it bears repeating here. An anthropologist studying the habits and customs of an African tribe found himself surrounded by children most days. So he decided to play a little game with them he managed to get candy from the nearest town and put it in a decorated basket at the foot of a tree. Then he called the children, suggested that they play the game. And when the anthropologist said now, the children had to run to the tree, and the first one to get there could have all the candy to themselves. So the children all lined up at the starting line, with the tree off in the distance, the basket of candy at the end, and the anthropologist said, now. And the children together held hands, ran together, grabbed a basket of candy, and shared it and split it up amongst themselves. And the anthropologist went over to them, completely shocked, this American anthropologist, completely shocked that they had did this, and asked why they had all run together when any one of them could have outraced the rest and had all the candy to themselves. And the children responded with the word Ubuntu. How could any one of us be happy when the rest of us are sad? Ubuntu is the African philosophy that can be summed up with, I am because of who we are. And the renowned Bishop Desmond Tutu, he explained it this way. One of the sayings in our country is Ubuntu, the essence of being human. Ubuntu speaks particularly about the fact that you can't exist as a human being in isolation. It speaks about our interconnectedness. You can't be human all by yourself. And when you have this quality, Ubuntu, you are known for your generosity. We think of ourselves far too frequently as just individuals separated from one another, whereas you are connected and what you do affects the whole world. When you do well, it spreads out. It is for the whole of humanity. Ubuntu, I am because of who we are. Let's close in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 9. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one 
to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Thank you for all you have done and all you will do to help me resist temptation. With God's help, together we will overcome this world. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.